Thank you guys so much for being here this morning. If, um, if you're our guest today, our, our mode of preaching is to, to work our way through a book of the Bible. And so today we just continue um, where we left off in 1 Peter chapter 4. I know when you sit down in a new church and you look in a bulletin and the title of the sermon is, This is the End, your immediate thought is, Where hath I come today? We're a little bit crazy, but not totally crazy. So that was supposed to be funny. Glad you guys are here. You know, I think the most worthless week of the year is those five days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, where all testing is done, all TCAPs have been taken, all final grades have been submitted, yet kids have to go to school for one more week. You know that week that I'm talking about? Like that, that really happens, by the way, if you're like, they really do that? Yeah, that, that's, how it, that's how it plays out. So there's this whole week that you, that you have to go to school, but school's over. It's like, what are we doing here? Like, this is the end, right? You know, what I, you know what I'm referring to? Well, sadly, I think that that's how a lot of people think about living as followers of Jesus in this world. Like, we're here. We know we're sinners. We know Jesus saved us. We know at some point he's going to come back or we're going to die and we're going to get to go be with him. So, like, what's this period, what's this time all about? And I just think that is a wretchedly unbiblical way to think about life. And I think Peter agrees. I think what Peter wants to say is, yeah, this is the end. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, God has a purpose and a calling and a work for his people. The fact that the end is near doesn't mean that we disengage and say, who cares and let's go do whatever we want to, or, or who cares, let's just go be happy. No, the fact that the end is near says God has work for his church. Peter's actually going to say that the interrelationship of those within the church matters more because the end is near. Peter's going to say that what we think and what we say and what we do matters because the end is near. So I've entitled this sermon, This is the End. And by that, I don't mean that that's the end of this book or the end of even this sermon. i got a bunch more to say today. Or the end of the world. I'm just saying what the Bible says that ever since Jesus left the world to go and dwell at the right hand of God, He rules and reigns over all things, 1 Peter chapter 3. He's in control of all things, 1 Peter chapter 3. He's coming back for His people, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we can trust that He will save those who believe in Him, 1 Peter chapter 3. And now chapter 4 says, So live accordingly. What this says is, yes, the end of all things is at hand because we're all looking for Jesus to come back and right wrongs and set the record straight eternally. But as we wait, Peter is calling these Christians to live in a particular way, a way that honors the Lord, points to the cross of Jesus, draws people to Jesus, and bears much fruit. That is the point of this passage. So today we're going to talk a lot about what Christians think and do. And we're going to talk a lot about 
the church and how Christians relate to one another. And we're going to talk about how to navigate suffering a little bit more than we did even last week. And you might be sitting there going, why does all of this matter? Because Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And because Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him, and now He is calling us into His church to live for His purposes and carry out His work until this world is over. So until we can say the end has come, then we say we live accordingly to what God wants for us on this world. What do we do? Peter's going to tell us three things. Keep walking with Christ. Keep serving Christ's people. Keep rejoicing to be with Christ. So for my note-taking friends, first point, keep walking with Christ. Verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end is near. By the way, Christians have believed since Jesus came, lived, died, rose the third day, appeared on the earth, ascended into heaven. Christians have believed that the next major point in history is Jesus coming again. I commend you to believe that. And Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. And so I think if you would have polled Christians in 55, 60-ish AD that Peter was writing to and said, when is Jesus coming back? They would have said, any day now, right? If you would have polled Christians in the 300s and said, when is Jesus coming back? They would have said, any day now. If you polled Christians in the 1000s and said, when is Jesus coming back? They would have said, any day now. If you poll Christians soon after the Reformation in the 1500s and said, when is Jesus coming back? They would have said, any day now. If you polled Christians during the Second Great Awakening right up the road in West Kentucky in the late 1800s and said, when is Jesus coming back? They would have said, any day now. If you would have polled me as a new believer in 1998 and said, when is Jesus coming back? I would have said, any day now. And I poll you and I say, when is Jesus coming back? And you should say, Why? Because the Bible wants us to live as if Jesus is coming back any day now. So what do we do believing that the end of all things is at hand? Peter says, first of all, be self-controlled and sober-minded. I think what he means there is don't lose control of your mind, your thoughts, your words, and your actions, but rather keep them firmly focused on God and God's Word and God's Son and God's work and God's plan. Be self-controlled. That is, don't lose control of your actions as if your actions don't matter. Humanity 
has always wanted to do what it wants, when it wants, how it wants. And, and just, like, just spare us all the, the false notion that, that, that any of us is innocent from that. Because at the core, left to ourselves in our sin, apart from the, the radical, powerful grace of Jesus, we all want to do what we want, how we want, when we want. And we revolt against not being able to do so. That's at the core of who we are, apart from the grace of God. And Peter knows that these dear Christians are prone to hear what he's saying about persecution and evil and Jesus coming back and going, fine, I'll just do what I want to because Jesus is coming back any day anyway. But he says, no, be self-controlled. Let your life be controlled by the power of the grace of God that turns sinners into followers of Jesus and the power of the grace of God that turns sinners into obedient servants and the power of the grace of God that turns hardened, rebellious hearts into softened, worshipful hearts. Be controlled by the Spirit. Be controlled by the Word of God. Be controlled by the power of God's grace. Let yourself remain controlled. And then he says, be sober-minded. Sober-minded. We all know that sober is the antonym of drunk. Sober is the antonym of intoxicated. To be, to be intoxicated is to have lost control of your faculties, to have lost control of your mind, to have lost control of your ability to, to make decisions. And so sober-minded is to have a mind that's under control, to have a mind that's focused upon Christ, to have a mind that's focused upon His Word, to have a mind that's focused upon His promises, to have a mind that will preach to itself when necessary the truths of the Gospel. Be sober-minded. So, Peter is saying to these Christians that in this, this in-between world where we live, where we know we belong to Christ and we know that Christ reigns and we know that Christ wins and we know that future vindication is coming, in this in-between world, our primary purpose is to keep walking with Christ as if He genuinely and re realistically and tangibly is the Lord of all. Keep walking with Him by being sober-minded and being self-controlled. And then there's this weird phrase, for the sake of your prayers. Man, Peter is fixated on this. Because a couple of chapters before, he said, Husbands, be understanding and, and gentle towards your wives in their weakness. And he says, for the sake of your prayers. And I know with your good reformational mindset, you're going, but hold on. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus represents us before the throne. Jesus makes our prayers acceptable to God. Jesus makes our prayers be heard by God and God answers them through Christ. To which I say yes and amen. Peter is not suggesting that we have to earn the hearing of God. But I think is what he is suggesting is that is it impossible in a moment and in a split 
instant to seek after God in prayer and seek after trying to please myself in my own flesh. Peter understands that that seeking after the Lord is an act of faith and seeking after the Lord in prayer is an act of submission and seeking after the Lord in prayer is an act of obedience and seeking after the Lord in prayer is an act of self-control, sober-mindedness. And he understands that when our minds and our lives are not yielded to Christ, In that moment, we will not be filled with prayer to God for the blessings of God, for the kingdom of God to come. We we good there? It's not like Peter's saying, be good so God will hear you. That's that's not biblical. That's a lie. But it's like like Peter's saying that, that your life will be filled with prayer. Your life will be filled with crying out to God for God to work in ways that only God can as your life is captivated by Jesus as it is sober-minded, as it's filled with self-control. Those things go hand in hand. Yesterday afternoon was a very hard few hours for me. For reasons that don't need to be brought to the surface here, I was filled with anger, doubt, despair, fear, and anxiety. I was entertaining thoughts that do not need to be uttered. But in that moment, what I needed was the Word of God to captivate my crazy, racing, anxious mind and bring it back to sobriety and say, God is with you and God loves you and God is for you because you're in Christ and God will be with you no matter what befalls you and Jesus is your Savior and He is your Lord and that sober-mindedness is what freed me from my debilitating me pity party and freed me to cry out to the Lord in prayer. In that same season, I was filled with anger. Anger was winning inside of me. I wanted to claw somebody. Or maybe many somebodies. Or maybe everybody. Or maybe that just doesn't matter. But the point is, is that in that that aggressive anger that was raging inside of me, I could not hone my being upon the purposes and the will of the Lord. And it took the Spirit bringing me back into sobriety and self-control to say, God, you are my God, and I will praise you. God, you are my God, and what I need is your approval and not the approval of others. God, you are my God, and I don't have to vindicate myself because Jesus will vindicate all his people at the appointed time. You see, self-control and sober-mindedness and prayerfulness go hand in hand. And so I think what Peter would say to us, I'm saying keep walking with Christ. What Peter would say to us is, keep your life self-controlled, your mind soberly focused on Jesus, such that it can be filled with the petition and the praise and the confession and the adoration that prayerfulness calls us to. None of this is to merit or earn anything. It is to walk in the salvation that Jesus has already purchased for us.
Now, I'm just going to say this as an aside. I tell that story about yesterday to be tangible and real, and I do not tell it to belittle or to lessen the suffering that I know many of you in this room carry from depression and anxiety and debilitating fear. I'm not belittling at all. I'm not suggesting that if you could just spend 30 seconds doing what I do, everything would go away. That's, that's not the, my communication at all, and please do not take it that way. I'm just trying to say that yesterday your pastor was sinning, and your pastor needed the grace of God, and the grace of God won, and we can celebrate that. And I want you to replicate that in your lives as much as you can. We good there? I feel like I need to be in Sunday school where I can like pull the audience here, okay? And just to prove that this is what Peter's saying, let's go down a little bit. Verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Basically what Peter's saying, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but is don't let your life be characterized by the rebellious acts of unrighteousness that characterize those who don't know Christ. He's saying be transformed, walk with Jesus, and let the gospel win. So because the end is near, keep walking with Christ. Second, because the end is near, keep serving Christ's people. Keep serving Christ's people. Now, guys, when I say Christ's people, I'm particularly talking about the local church. And so we're at, at Redeemer Church, and so I'm particularly talking about the people of Redeemer. If you're here today and you're, not a, you're, just our, you're our guest and you live out of town, I would say every time I say Redeemer today, insert the local church that you're a part of. If you're here today looking like maybe what church does God long for my family to be a part of, where's God leading us, I would say insert this is the type of church that God wants me to to be a part of. It sounds so self-serving when a pastor stands up and talks about the church, when a pastor stands up and talks about love one another, be kind to one another, serve one another, be filled with compassion and care for one another. Because it sounds like, oh yeah, yeah, you want me to do that so that your church can, can, can be good and be strong and, and you can reap benefit. Yeah, that's all good and fair and true because I'm a sinner too. But the reality is Peter is extremely concerned with the inner workings of the life of the local congregation in this book. This is about the third time that he's launched into how you relate to one another matters. And so I'm here to say, church, that how we relate to one another matters more and more the closer we come to the end and not less and less. What the world needs is not for Christians to retreat to the suburbs and once there retreat into their homes as enclaves and hunker down and buy some rations and wait for the end. And you chuckle, but you know there's an element of truth there. Peter seems to think that what the church what the world needs and what the mission of God needs and what the kingdom of God calls for is for the church to love and serve and care for one another well as we serve and wait for Jesus. Look around. 
Go ahead. I give you, this is an interactive session. Look around. We are a bunch of weird people. Misfits all. Most of you would never want to be my friend, but yet you're in a room where you have to listen to me for 45 minutes. I hear there's a bunch of beards here, and people that can't grow beards feel inferior. Well, welcome. We love you too. Jesus covers your lack of facial hair. Amen. Thank you, Brian. You know, prepubescent kids can go to heaven too, you know? The point is, there's a lot of difference in this room. And the fact that we are able to navigate difference and move toward love is a testimony of God's grace. The fact that we're able to navigate difference and move toward mercy is a testimony to God's grace. The fact that we're able to navigate difference and move toward service is a testimony to God's grace. And go ask somebody who used to be a part of the church and now is either an atheist or an agnostic or just doesn't care anymore, fill in your category. What do they always point to? Always. The church is what? A bunch of hypocrites. Yes, we are. Welcome. Hypocrites, welcome. But may we be people who don't revel in being hypocritical, but we repent of it and we seek Jesus and we seek to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter seems to know that the way the church relates to one another will either commend the gospel of Jesus or shine negativity upon the gospel of Jesus. And he, look at the word he uses in verse 8. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. Above all? Above all? Like after that comma, wouldn't you expect something like, believe that Jesus died for your sins? Or, right, like you'd expect something huge. By the way, you should believe that Jesus died for the payment of your sins above all. But, you, but, but, but above all, I mean, that calls for, you know, like, like you're parenting and you're disciplining your child and you've laid out all these things you're concerned about in their life and you end with what? Like above all, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's work this backward. Theologically, all glory, all praise, all honor belongs to the Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. One way, Peter says, that we give God the glory that he deserves is by displaying the power of the gospel and how we relate to one another. And I keep, just want to keep pointing at this text because I'm not making this stuff up. Let's look at it. Verse 8 says this. Love is the motive and the disposition within the church. Love is the disposition within 
the church. We talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 3, but I want to say it one more time. Love biblically understood is desiring God's eternal best for another. And so Peter says, don't lead with your feelings. Don't lead with your tendencies. Don't lead with your, the things you enjoy. Don't lead with, with what you have in common. Don't lead with what makes you most comfortable. Don't lead into a relationship with any of these things. He says, lead into relationship with what? Love as Christ has loved us. Peter goes so far to say that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I think that's a theological statement, right? The love of Christ covers a multitude of sins in us. Christ led with love. But I think what he's also saying and what he means to imply here is that if our disposition is right, we can navigate so much difference, so much disagreement, so much differing of opinion, so much wishing things would be otherwise, so much lamenting that somebody doesn't think exactly like I do about everything, so much of wanting everyone to like everything I do on Facebook and dislike everything I dislike on Facebook, which is just a, a wretched captivity that I'll stay out of for this moment. But, but the point is, Peter says the leading step into the, the local church is love for one another that's shaped by the love God has lavished upon us. So go inward for a minute. Join me right now in checking your heart. Checking your mind. Checking your soul. Are we quick to love? Are quick to condemn? Are we quick to love? Are quick to point out difference? Are we quick to love? Are we quick to look down upon others? Are we quick to love? Are we quick to highlight where people ought to be more like us? I think Peter starts there because he knows it's true. And I think Peter starts there because he knows that is the most important step within the community. If the love of Jesus has captivated us, let us love one another earnestly. Earnestly. That's a word we don't use much in the English language anymore. But earnestly means actively, convictionally, intentionally. Not just in some happenstance when it's convenient kind of way, but earnestly. I hope that I am preaching this sermon earnestly. As Peter says within the community, love one another earnestly. Second, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So hospitality means to welcome and to serve and to do so without grumbling. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying, be 
a welcoming people who welcome one another into our worlds and do so with a happy heart, as we say, within our home. We tell our kids to obey the first time with a happy heart. What we're wanting to teach our kids is first time obedience matters, but your attitude matters too. Peter says the same thing. Be hospitable, but with a happy heart about it. Look around. Welcome. Greet. Invite. Meet. Serve. Break bread with. Care for. Invest in. Be hospitable toward one another without grumbling. Implied parenthetical, the Jamie Mosley version, because Jesus and was hospitable toward you without grumbling. Third, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Are you good at cooking? Use it to serve others. Are you good at opening your home? Use it to serve others. Are you good at organization and planning? Use it to serve others. Are you good at teaching? Use it to serve others. Are you good at singing? Use it to serve others. Has God given you two hands and two feet? Use them to serve others. Whatever the Lord has given you, use your gifts to serve one another because every gift that God's given us, we're called to steward. So speak as a way to glorify God. Serve in the strength that the Lord provides. But recognize that God's called us to love one another. He's called us to show hospitality to one another. And He's called us to use our gifts for the good of the whole. So if you've taken one of those spiritual gift inventories and and, and you can say like, man, I... I'm 100% convinced that God has molded me to serve in this way. Man, man, please, you let me know because we want you to use that for the whole. But as my friend and New Testament professor Greg Thornberry liked to say in our church, but if God's given you two feet and the trash needs to go out, then He's given you the spiritual gift of trash collection as a way to serve the whole. So it would be the will of the Lord that Redeemer Church would be a people who seek to glorify God by manifesting and displaying and evidencing a tangible, servant-oriented, hospitality-driven love for one another in the here and now. I really want to keep preaching, but I'm almost out of time. So third point. Keep rejoicing to be with Christ. Keep rejoicing to be with Christ. So last week we talked about persecution. Persecution is suffering because you belong to Jesus. And Peter comes back to it here and he says, look, verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering's going to come. But rejoice in rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
If anyone, verse 16, suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you get the tenor of this? Here's what Peter's saying. If you suffer for the cause of Christ and you endure hardship, then you in that moment in a tangible, experiential, real way know the presence of God with you like you, it's hard to replicate. Right? Like if you ever read stories about martyrs for the faith, you know, they're about to be burned at the stake and they're like singing psalms and like encouraging one another and they're saying like, we will not denounce Jesus and we look at that and we just go, Man, I couldn't, well, I don't know where that strength comes from, right? Like, we, it just seems foreign to us. It's like Peter's saying this. He's saying, look, when you suffer and you endure for the cause of Christ, you're enduring because God is with you, and that brings about a tangible, real, experiential presence of God in your life that is always there, but we often fail to recognize. Suffering says, God is with me. Praise be His name. And so Peter says, as the end is near, rejoice that Christ is with you. Because friends, here's the promise of the New Testament. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that at the end comes judgment, and that's biblical. At the end, everyone will give an account for their lives. But the promise of the New Testament is that anyone who confesses their sin believes that Jesus is Lord, cries out to Him for forgiveness and for salvation and for righteousness and for new life, will be saved for this life and the life to come. That is the promise of the New Testament. And Peter says, while we wait on the life to come, rejoice in the presence of Christ in the here and now. Recognize that Christ is with me. And delight in it. Recognize that Christ is with me and worship Him. Recognize that Christ is with me and rest in Him. Recognize that Christ is with me and entrust our entire lives into His hands. So church, Peter's instructing us how to live today and tomorrow and as long as Jesus tarries for His glory. And he says, keep walking with Christ. Keep serving Christ's people and keep rejoicing to be with Christ. As I conclude this morning, just a couple of things I want to point out. Where in your life do you need to return to walking with Christ more tangibly and more really? What in your life is a way that you are using all of who God's made you to be to serve the church of Jesus and the people of Christ? And as you see that, delight in it and celebrate it. Where in your life are you hard-hearted, putting up walls toward God's people, toward the church of Jesus?
where are you tangibly experiencing the presence of God with you and where do you feel distance and far away? And in all of those things, let us come to the throne of God's grace and say, I need your help. Let us open his word and say, speak your truth to me. Let us pray for his spirit to purge away our sin and and pull us closer to him. Let us all walk with Christ, serve his church, and rejoice that he is with us. Father and our God, now we pray that you would take these truths and work them deeply into our lives, into our minds, into our hearts. Work for your glory in us. Lord, I pray that you would not allow these words to just fall silently, but that you would cause them to work powerfully. Pray that you would prevent us from just walking out of here and saying, "Eh, glad I did that, but you would cause us to walk out of here and say, God is challenging me and speaking to me and teaching me. Lord, we're we're, we're looking for you to, to move in us and we're asking you to work in power.